You're listening to the People's Podcast. Hope is not a goddamn strategy. This is JSC Radio. You know, I struggle with the fact that you probably wouldn't even know about Mike Brown had I not called myself into work, truly, because it was just another young black kid that got shot. You know, you know how they talk in the newsroom. Oh, yeah. And so, oh, boy, do I ever. Yeah. And so it's just like a kid gets shot, whatever. We'll get some VO. We'll get some video and we'll move on. Had I not gone there and found some other, you know, some other parts to the story or had I not used social media to share the story, it probably wouldn't have caught on the way that it did. So ugh, it's just a lot to unpack. Check it out. This is Jay. S.C. Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hey now, my name is Jay Scott Smith and this is another landmark. The 85th episode of the People's Podcast. This is J.S.C. Radio. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you might be listening to this program. Thank you. Damn it. Thank you for joining us. And for you first timers, welcome. Damn it. Welcome to the show. Welcome, my friends, to the podcast that never ends. I'm Jay Scott Smith. You can, of course, follow me if you aren't already on Twitter at Jay Scott Smith, J-A-Y-S-C-O, two T's, S-M-I-T-H. Same name over there at Instagram. I should be verified on Instagram very soon. Also, you can follow the show on Twitter at JSC Radio. Be sure to support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Some of you who are followers on Patreon got the interview part of this show three days early. Get on there. There's going to be plenty of different things coming for the Patreon page as we roll into the fall. So, of course, I could always use your support here. And we're working on getting some merch some point down the line. So you never know. But be sure to follow on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Radio. I'm on Facebook under Real J. Scott Smith. And naturally, you can find the show across any and all podcast providers. I don't care where you are right now, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, on SoundCloud or Stitcher, on Google Play or TuneIn, on Audioboom, iHeartRadio, Radio Public, and Spotify. Be sure to lock it down wherever you see it. And thank you so much for supporting JSC Radio. And welcome to the show for all my first timers here to check out our guest on this week's show. And this week's show is not going to even attempt to really touch sports too much. As I mentioned last week, I've been asked a lot lately, what kind of podcast is this? Is this a sports podcast? Is it a news show? Is it about politics? Well, it's not directly about politics. It's not a news show. And truth be told, I wouldn't really classify this 100% as a sports show. It's more sports than anything else because sports, as I always say, is a metaphor for life. And... The life at times that it's a metaphor for is my life. Because on top of being this podcaster, for the better part of the last 15 years, I have worked in some form or fashion in radio. And by and large, since I was 16 years old, which is 23 years ago, good God, I have been a black journalist going back to when I was in high school. 
And being a black journalist, by the way, I'm a member of the National Association of Black Journalists. Being a black journalist, for any of us who have worked in newsrooms, is a, uh, it's a perilous gig when you think about it. But not from the aspect that most people would realize. Yes, you're out in the streets and you're telling stories and you're getting news and you're going to these venues. But oftentimes, simply being a journalist makes you a bit of a target and a bit unwanted. But the thing is, if you're black and you're walking in there, and it's even extra if you're a black woman, you're kind of seen as being out of your element and out of your place. But you don't just feel that way when you're out covering a story. You feel that way in your own newsroom. It's a feeling that I've experienced. It's a feeling that the young lady who's going to be talking to me later on in the show, Ms. Brittany Noble, has experienced. It's something that has been relayed to me by numerous black journalists before, young and old. That is difficult doing what we do, and it is. Right now, I'm on the outside looking in. You know me, I don't bullshit. I'm not gonna cut, I'm not gonna cut corners here. By the way, you first timers might notice the language gets a little salty from time to time. This is actually one of the cleaner episodes you're gonna experience, but still. I, I, I don't BS people. I'm on the outside looking in right now. And a fair amount of that is because I'm not one to take crap off people. And when you're not one to take crap off people, especially if you're a black man or a black woman or brown, life becomes a little bit tougher for you. Now, that's not to say I haven't had a multitude of amazing experiences. I've talked about it time and time again on this podcast and in other places. I've had some experiences as a journalist I wouldn't give back for the world. Sitting in the press box at Comerica Park the night the Tigers made the World Series in 2012. That's an all-timer for me. I still get goosebumps talking about that. Going on national radio on NPR, talking about the presidential races, being on MSNBC, talking to Tamron Hall, having had stories in Newsweek magazine and Vibe magazine, having done all these really super cool things, having written for my hometown newspapers, both of them, the Detroit News and the Detroit Free Press, being able to cover everything from high school football to Major League Baseball, from community meetings to murder trials, having gotten exclusive interviews and having been able to talk to people who normally don't talk to too many others and getting their stories told. That's the great part about what I've done as a journalist. And who knows, maybe I'll get another opportunity to do it. Right now, I'm not sure. But I'm not going to sit here and act like that everything is sweet. I'm not going to act like shit's sweet. It's not. It's hard. It's really hard. And you can read every study. You can do all your research you want to. But if you're one of us and you've ever grabbed a microphone or grabbed a notepad or grabbed your laptop or sat down at a desk or stepped in front of a camera, you get what this is for us. To be a black journalist means you're not only simply being a messenger for truth and for getting the story right, you're also seen as a representation of your entire community. You're a representation of all of us. When I grew up in Detroit, one of the main names that I will always remember from early television back in the 80s, 
or watching television back in the early 80s when I was a little kid, I should say, was Carmen Harlan. Carmen Harlan was a co-anchor on WDIV Channel 4's 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 11 o'clock news. It's known as Local 4 Now, WDIV. What up, though, Kari Hobbs? My man from Detroit City, Ruth Jones. He's actually over there at WDIV right now. Carmen Harlan was a black woman. A black woman anchoring local news was not something that you generally saw back then. Now, remember, I just turned 39 last week. So this is, you're talking about the mid-1980s. This was still a thing around the country where black women and black men were anchoring newscasts around the country where it's a big deal. And you rarely saw a black man and a black woman at the same desk. At the desk with Carmen Harlan was Mort Krim. Mort Krim, for those of us in Detroit, Mort Krim's voice is iconic. It's legendary. He still does the occasional spots for Magic Windows. And I know he's shown up on rap albums occasionally doing voices and showing up in music videos. He's also the inspiration for the Ron Burgundy character in the movie Anchorman. But Mort Krim, he was the authoritative voice for Detroit. It was Mort Krim and Bill Bonds over at Channel 7. Channel 7 also had Doris Bisco, black woman, and Diana Lewis. Her daughter Glenda currently works at WXYZ Channel 7 right now. Black journalists were not as difficult to come by on Detroit television as they would be in other places around the country. In newspapers, on the other hand, it was a much harder thing. And yeah, I can name a few. Like Bob, I, I can name a few. You can have gentlemen, obviously later on, like Bob Magruder at the Detroit Free Press. You had, uh, now you have currently have Rochelle Riley. You had Terry Foster, who retired a couple of years ago from the Detroit News, and he was at the Free Press at one time. You have Drew Sharp, who passed away. But it was getting tough to start to name some of those black reporters. But they were out there, and they were inspirations to us. I first got inspired to become a black journalist by sitting with my late Uncle Harvey. He passed away a few years ago. My Uncle Harvey managed the dry cleaners over on Livernoy, near the Lodge Freeway, not far from the Sherwood Forest neighborhood in Detroit. He would come home, and occasionally my mom would have my aunt and uncle babysit me. I'm only two, three, four years old, and my uncle would come home. I remember he would pick up the Detroit News, open it up, and start reading it. And me, being a little toddler, I didn't know no better. I'd just see him sitting over there with the paper, so I would apparently I'd crawl or stumble over there, and I'd pick up the paper and just start looking at it. I was two. Couldn't read. Well, at least for another few months, I couldn't read. I picked up on shit early. And... The thing that always interested me were the pictures and the comics. And I was, even as a little, little kid, I was into baseball. And I would see pictures of the Detroit Tigers or baseball players, and I would just start staring at them and pointing to them and everything else. So as I started learning how to read and understand things, my uncle would point me in the direction of the sports section to where the Tigers were. Again, this is 1983, 1984, when the Tigers were really, really, really good and on their way to winning a World Series. So he taught me what it was, how to read the standings in the American League Eastern Division, where the Tigers were at the time. And that's how I first got introduced to sports writing, was by simply understanding the standings and seeing that Detroit was number one. 
and I think Toronto at that time, or Baltimore, was also there. That's how I got to understand. That was my first taste of being in newspaper. And I always said that if I didn't get an opportunity to become a baseball player, I would love to cover baseball. I would love to be a pro athlete if I can't cover it. So you fast forward to me getting my first apprenticeship slash internship at the Detroit Free Press when I was 16 years old in the mid-1990s. And the energy that there is in a newsroom, it's a rush. A lot of the things you see in movies, a lot of the things you see on TV, I would say the last season of The Wire is about as accurate a representation of a newsroom as you're ever going to see. So I suggest you check that out if you get the opportunity, if you haven't before. But being in a newsroom, it was astonishing to me. But the apprenticeship program I was a part of was with a group of kids from all the Detroit public high schools. So I'm in a newsroom full of black kids. So I don't see the big issue. It wasn't until I got to college and it wasn't until I got into the working world that I started to notice that being in rooms full of black people, newsrooms full of black people, was not going to happen nearly as often. And it sure as hell wasn't going to happen in places like public radio. We're saved for stations like WDET in Detroit. My man Jerome Vaughn and all the crew over there. I just saw y'all a couple weeks ago when I was back home for Labor Day and the uh, Aretha Franklin funeral. Aside from newsrooms like that, there aren't too many out there that have a whole lot of us roaming around in them. And that's, it's a damn shame. And it's sad. My journey as a black journalist, it is, it is everything from dealing with being the only black guy in a newsroom, which is a jarring feeling when it first hits you. When you look around and you realize you are on that island by yourself. You are alone. I worked, when I worked in Lansing, Michigan, I was the only black guy in the room. And it was weird. And you find yourself where you're not intentionally trying to advocate for being the quote-unquote black reporter, the black guy who covers black stories. But when you see a story that's being covered, especially dealing with a neighborhood, especially dealing with something either in athletics or criminal activity or anything else, and you only see it slotted and slanted in one direction, you have an obligation as a black reporter to stand up and say something. You have an obligation as a black reporter to say, hey, how about we look at it from this angle? Or maybe there's something more to this. Or how about I go manage and handle this thing? Because there's a better chance they'll talk to me than they'll talk to you. Or you're going to get one thing from them. I'm going to get something else from them. That's one thing you run into. Plus, you deal with newsroom politics. And newsroom politics can range from everything from personality conflicts to one guy having a little bit more shine and you want to reel him in and knock him down to simply put, even if it's dynamics of, of gender, because if you do have multiple black people in a room, you might have one black man, one black woman. And there's going to be newsroom politics. There's going to be the BS. And I'm saying this to the young journos listening to this right now. There's going to be politics. There's going to be bullshit in the room. And there's going to be people who are going to actively invest their time in making sure that you don't succeed. But there are also people in that room who are going to actively invest their time in making sure they do. And in a lot of cases, the people actively looking to see you succeed may not look like you. And the people actively looking to see you fail may look like you and vice versa. And you got to be able to attack that. you got to be able to address that and deal with that straight up. I look at my time as a journalist, especially a black journalist. And that's something I had to kind of wrap my head around. 
because for the longest, I always knew I was a journalist. But it's like you have to have moments where you're reminded that you are a black journalist. I had my black journalist come to Jesus meeting. Well, I've had a few of them. But maybe the most recent one came at the last high-profile gig. I won't name their names, not because I'm afraid of retribution, simply put. They got to pay me to get their name mentioned on here. But we all know what happened two years ago. Coming up on the two-year anniversary of that disastrous day in November. I, as you recall, episode 23 of this podcast, I let loose the day after the election. Members of the Ku Klux Klan, members of white supremacist groups were literally taking victory laps around the country today. Men like David Duke, and I use the term man very loosely to describe him, were cheering this victory by Donald Trump. The Ku Klux Klan, the Ku Klux Klan endorsed this man multiple times. They were doing robocalls for him in the South. But you're going to sit here and tell me that just because I support Trump doesn't make me racist. Yes, it does. But that podcast effectively was me blowing off steam. I can't totally say that because I did kind of map out where I was going. But a couple of days later, I gave a more measured response. And I told the story of the night that President Obama was elected 10 years earlier. And how I was in Chicago. And I've talked about this before. I talked about it on that episode, actually. That I was in Chicago and made the road trip out there after voting that morning in Detroit. Made the road trip out to Chicago because there was going to be this big party in Grant Park. And kind of the big watch party and the anticipation and everything. And then Obama wins. And it's just this unbridled celebration in the streets of Chicago. And I, I BS you not, there were police officers hugging and high-fiving black people in the street as this thing was going down. It was incredible. Fast forward 10 years later, and Trump happened. The night Obama won, my mother broke down in tears. My dad couldn't stop laughing, but my mother broke down in tears at the sight of a black president, something she never figured she would see in her lifetime. I broke down as soon as I heard the tears on the other end of the phone. 10 years later, the exact same thing happened, but for different reasons. And I told that story. I wrote it in a column, an opinion piece, very clearly an opinion piece. It had been established with the opinion editor there, and it was going to run the Friday after the election. That awful week that ensued, and many of you remember how bad that week after the election was around the country for anybody who was halfway sensible. Well, I wrote the piece. It was cleared. The opinion editor thought it was amazing and ran it at 12 noon on a Friday afternoon. By 2 p.m. that Friday, it had been pulled off, the, pulled off the website by the news editor. The news editor, who has no say over the opinion side. The news editor, who didn't tell me that he'd pulled the piece. Apparently, didn't tell the opinion editor either. So hours later, in the amount of time it took me to get from the office back to my apartment to share it on social, it was pulled off the site gone. It was days later that I was told that the peace would have been seen as too offensive to Mr. Trump's supporters. Too offensive. 
to uh, Mr. Trump supporters. Let me read an excerpt from that opinion piece that was deemed, quote, too offensive. Too offensive to Mr. Trump supporters. Quote, my mother's fears are not unfounded. Millions of black and brown people woke up last Wednesday morning fearful. Muslims and Latinos around this country were wondering what's next and with good reason. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, more than 200 incidents of hate and intimidation have been reported to them since Election Day. A multitude of stories, pictures, and viral videos from around the country, including multiple times here in Philadelphia, have popped up showing everything from swastikas to high school students, York, PA, carrying Trump signs and chanting white power to middle school students in Royal Oak, just 15 minutes outside of my native Detroit, taunting Latino kids with chants of build that wall. Just this past weekend, a University of Oklahoma student was suspended after he targeted black freshmen at Penn. The students were added to a group on the text app GroupMe called, quote, nigger lynching. That's an actual quote. That's the, that's the name. The message came from people using the internet pseudonym Daddy Trump, as well as being punctuated by the phrase Heil Trump. Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney and Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf have issued statements condemning these actions almost daily since the election. Quote, everyone is welcome in Philadelphia, regardless of whether they are a freshman at one of our universities or if they've always called Philadelphia home. It's heartbreaking to see this type of activity here in the birthplace of our democracy and in the city of brotherly love. During the campaign, reporters who covered Trump were routinely tormented by people at his rallies and on social media. NPR's Asma Khaled is an Arab American and Muslim, and she wears a hijab. She is often subjected to terrible and hateful messages on Twitter, so much so that every couple of days, she retweets the worst of the worst. ABC's Candace Smith was, until the campaign's final week, the only African-American reporter covering Trump on the trail. She described life on the road. Quote, on Twitter, I've been called, again, this is a quote, a nigger, a C-word that I just, I cannot, and at times a combination of the two. One person who claimed to be Christian, as I am, tweeted, you are a Hillary whore and thus cannot be saved by grace. Grace would not have a whore like you. Smith also talked about another common presence at Trump's rallies, Confederate flags. The flags, regarded as a symbol of racism by people of color and many others, were prevalent in more than just the South. Quote, I saw them in Pittsburgh, in North Carolina, in San Diego, and in Florida. When I noted the flags, people on Twitter would ask, why was I so obsessed with race? Many of his supporters have said that bigotry didn't play a role in his appeal, that it was simply, quote, economic anxiety that drove so many people to him. For people of color, those observations seem naive, obtuse, or disingenuous. That's what I wrote. It was an opinion piece, but most of what I pulled were not opinions, they were stated facts. They were pulled from interviews, public comments, and statistics. But this station was so worried about offending a Trump voter in the middle of Pennsylvania that the piece got pulled. And in moments like that, it was difficult because being, again, the only black regular reporter in the office and one of only three black producers at the time, 
it became very, very difficult to look around and wonder, what are we doing here? That a station is more worried about offending some Trump voter out in the middle of Pennsylvania because a piece was written by a reporter that stated facts. But this is what we're up against as black reporters because, quote, the fear of our opinion, I put quote, I put opinion in big quote marks, that we're seen as biased if we dare to point out obvious things that affect black people and people of color. And that's what leads to difficulty in getting stories through. The amount of time I've had to spend fighting to get stories that deal with our community pushed through, not just there, but in other places, is it's mind-blowing to me. And I see that because it's a lament that's brought to me by students I mentor, by my contemporaries, by people who are older than me, by people I've worked with. I've heard this before. And they often try to dismiss it as, oh, it's just all in your head, or you just, uh, no, it's not all in my head. It's how it actually is if you're a black journalist. It is difficult because even the most important stories you have to fight through. You have to push to get through. You have to get the story told and you have to do it without the quote unquote white glance. Because often, even if you write the story, the editor handling the piece is likely white and they may not get it and they'll pull a detail out. The number of times I've had to put pertinent details back into stories because a white editor didn't get it. Again, that's something I've heard numerous times from black reporters. I did a story on black Muslims in Philadelphia. That was a tough piece to push through because there still seemed to be an idea that the nation of Islam accounts for all black Muslims. That's not the case. That black Muslims are dealing with a double-edged sword. That you're not only black, but you're also Muslim and that makes you doubly a target. But that's a story that wasn't being told and I had to fight like hell to get it out there. And so many others have had to fight like hell to get stories like that told or to simply even be respected in their own newsroom. If you're a black woman, the trials are even more evident. You not only have to simply deal with being possibly silenced and shut down and being mischaracterized as angry, that's another thing. You're mischaracterized as being angry or having an attitude. If you're a black man, you're seen as aggressive. Hell, if you're a black woman, you're seen as aggressive if you dare to assert yourself. But if you're a black woman, you also have to account for, more so if you work in TV, you have to account for your looks. You have to account for hair, makeup, your actual body image. Our guest on this show is gonna touch on a lot of that too during the interview. You gotta deal with sexual harassment. You look at what went on at NPR, and the New York Times, and the Washington Post, and in other places, NBC. Sexual harassment in the workplace, that's another target hanging around your neck. There's so many things that being a black journalist, being a good journalist, being a noble journalist happens to entail, and it makes our lives a lot harder. So for those of you who have never set foot in a newsroom, have never as much as taken a journalism course, to understand that to be a black journalist in America, specifically since about 2015, has been one of the more difficult things you can think of. It's one of the hardest things you could possibly do, one of the most difficult undertakings you could ask for. But please understand that we're still going to do our job. You may not like it, 
But please understand when you see that black man or black woman on TV or hear them on the radio or see their name on a byline in a newspaper, unless you're at the New York Times where their names have been ripped off bylines, please know that there's so much more shit that goes into it than just simply getting the story right. It's getting the story written. It's getting the story posted. It's keeping the damn story up there. And it's keeping everybody off your ass after you write it. For people like me, for now I'm on the outside looking in, but I still have the ability to talk to a lot of amazing people who work in all facets of this industry. And one of them is coming up after this break. And her name is Brittany Noble. And she's embarking on a new journey. After the first part of her career, a door may have closed, but another door has swung wide open for the noble journalist. Before we head into this break, I wanna, of course, shout out our friends at Miracle Whip. Yes, that tangy zip of Miracle Whip. You've been seeing the whip wear all over social media, the t-shirts, the hats, hell, we got one right here in the JSC Radio Studios in Philly. If you want one of those t-shirts, if you want one of those hats, hell, one of those shirts was even made in the Motor City. Hit up whipwear.shop, plus head over to miraclewhip.com for every possible recipe you can find for the tangy zip of Miracle Whip. Coming up after the break, I'm talking to Brittany Noble, AKA the Noble Journalist, coming to you from New York City. New York City! Exactly. I talked to her last week about her career, about what it was like to be one of the first people to break the story of what was really happening in Ferguson, Missouri, and how her quest to become a journalist was slightly derailed because one station couldn't seem to adjust to things such as her hair and her being a mother. My name is J. Scott Smith, and this is the 85th episode, Episodia Ochenta y Cinco of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio, and we'll be back after this. You're listening to the People's Podcast. And we swagger when we walk, because by God, we can. This is JSC Radio. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey now, it's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of JSC Radio, which you can now hear on Stitcher Radio. That's right, Stitcher is radio on demand. Now you can download the free app today and it's available on iOS, 
Android, as well as Nook and Kendall Fire. You can take JSC Radio anywhere. The app is free. You can listen anytime, anywhere. Now, if you're wondering what Stitcher is, Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all of your favorite shows, plus discover 40,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows, such as JSC Radio. You can create custom playlists. You can rate and review this show and others on Stitcher. Please drop a friendly review on the show. Not only is Stitcher available on all smartphones and tablets, it's also in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory on any of your devices. You can stream your favorite podcasts, like JSC Radio, for free on Stitcher. You don't have the Stitcher app? Simple. Go to Stitcher.com today or check out the App Store on whichever device you use. Stitcher Radio. Be sure to check it out. You're listening to the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. Well, Sharon, I was on West Floor Scent and Canfield, but my photographer Alonzo and I had to get out of the area. While shooting interviews and video, we found out our window had been broken into not just this window, but there was also a window in the back of our live truck. So again, we got out of there, concerned for our safety, but we were there at the beginning of that vigil on Canfield and again, West Floor Scent. There were thousands of people marching. Then the crowd became violent. People started surrounding police cars, hoping to intimidate officers who eventually drove away. I did speak with a 13-year-old, Aja Blackwell. She lives in that neighborhood, and she simply told me she was scared. What are you seeing? You said you're scared. What are you seeing? I'm seeing people doing um, doing stuff, like breaking into stores and stuff, and just doing bad stuff. What stores did they break into? Quick trip. What did they take out? Did you see them run out with anything? Everything. Everything, they everything, they destroy everything. And you're saying that pe- people are getting disruptive. What was happening? Well, you know, it's not the family, because I'm part of the family. But the people up there start throwing bottles. They caused the police to come down here. It was supposed to be peaceful. That's not peaceful, throwing bottles and beer cans and stuff like that. I've been reaching out to the Ferguson police chief. He has been helpful all weekend long with News 4. I want to know his plans to control the crowd. So I will continue to have updates online and on air. KMOV.com. Live in North County, Brittany Noble, News 4. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. My name is Jay Scott Smith, but y'all already knew that. This is the 85th episode. Episode Ochenta y Cinco of JSC Radio. Welcome back, y'all. I want to thank each and every one of you. Support me every week. And every so often, I bring people on, and y'all know this, the the history of this show, the two and a half year history of the show, I've done so many different interviews, and yes, it's another dynamic woman. What can I say? I, I, I know a lot of dynamic women. This young lady has, has a journey that a lot of people may not fully get, but she's one of the voices you know of when you think of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, but she's far more than that. She's a journalist, she's an entrepreneur, and she's about to add author to the list as well. I'm sitting here, not in Philadelphia, (laughs) taking this show on the road. I'm sitting here in Harlem, in New York City. New York City, yes, New York City, with Miss Brittany Noble. Brittany? Hi. Hi there. Hi. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. This thank, is such a privilege. Thank you. The, the privilege is all mine. <laughs> and I really appreciate you coming on here and talking to me 
because we've known each other for a few years. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to the first time I saw, saw Brittany, she was working in Flint. We both worked in Flint just in two different times. Like this was years back. This is at least 10 years ago for me when I was working in Flint. But I remember (laughs) seeing you in Flint and you've gone on to do so many amazing things. Thank you. So I guess the first thing I want to ask you is because it's hard to describe you as simply just a journalist now because you've been kind of and we'll get to your situation. But I want people to get to know you more. Okay. so first things first. What got you interested in being, of all things, a journalist, getting into this insane business that we found ourselves roaming around it? And tell a little bit of your story, just of you growing up. That's it. I just kind of stumbled into it. Um, I admittedly had a boyfriend that was a communications major when I was a student back at Alcorn State University, uh, an HBCU, and I spent a lot of time in the communications department, in the radio lab, uh, around... um, Um, other people who were studying TV and PR and originally I wanted to go into PR I felt like that made both that made the most money right right and so I was only concerned about making money at the time and then I realized that I was really really passionate about TV and telling stories and being nosy and sharing (laughs) the information that I get and so it was just uh, a point in my life I think I was in my sophomore year in college and I started praying and I was like I really want to do this um, so God, how do we do this? And I really felt like God said, you will be successful, but you had to put in the work. And so from then on, I just started grinding. Now, now you mentioned you went to Alcorn State. Now you grew up in St. Louis. Alcorn State. Alcorn State, excuse me. <laughs> that's that, that's, that fa- that, that's, that's the that fancy, Mississippi. That, that fancy, that fancy talk of, of those of us living in the Midwest. <laughs> there you that. go. Al- Alcorn State, we're famously known for Steve McNair went yeah. to Alcorn State. Mm-hmm. I, do, I, I had heard of Alcorn before. So you, were, you went to Alcorn State. You're originally from St. Louis. Yeah. Talk, me, talk to me about growing up in St. Louis. I've only been to St. Louis a few times, usually working, but I've never gotten to fully get to know sure. the city. St. Louis is special. Um, we're kind of still a southern town, even though we're a Midwest city. Um, and I will say one of the biggest things you'll notice about St. Louis, especially when you're going there for the first time or meeting people there, they'll say, where'd you go to high school? And that's our way of actually judging how much money you have and what kind of neighborhood you live in. The same thing in Detroit, too. See, um, that's one of those special St. Louis questions. But aside from that, you know, we all love our baseball team. We're a big Cardinals town and we love our good food, toasted ravioli and <laughs> Emo's pizza. And <laughs> I do love St. Louis, but I really, really want to go to an HBCU when it was time to go to college. I graduated from a really small Christian school in St. Louis and I just um, was ready for something different. So that's what got me to Alcorn State. And I would say they had a good uh, recruiting department, quite honestly, because there was a few of us St. Louis people uh, that were my year that um, went down to Alcorn, too. It, it is interesting because having I've been in and out of St. Louis a few times okay. when I worked when I was doing my first go round with Grio, I ended up in St. Louis a okay. lot because it's one of the a it was aside from Detroit, Chicago. It was one of those Midwestern cities that there was a lot happening in terms of African-American life, mm-hmm. essentially, and on all aspects of it, both in terms of sports, in terms of politically into everything. And this is pre-Ferguson, something we will definitely get to. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the, the Cardinals, for example. I grew up watching, I'm a baseball fan. Anybody yeah. who knows this show knows I'm a baseball fan. Mm-hmm. Ozzie Smith was the guy, was oh, like yeah. one of those black players I grew up just kind of idolizing, basically, because yeah. I always thought dude was just the absolute greatest. So mm-hmm. it's like, I grew up with him. I remember when I interviewed Ryan Howard, because Ryan Howard is from St. Louis, and mm-hmm. he played for the Phillies, and that's the first thing he said was, he always he, he always looked up to guys like Ozzie Smith when he, when he yes. grew up. I mean. 
Unfortunately for me being in Detroit, the Cardinals also ripped out my heart in 2006 in the World <laughs> Series. But I'll leave, I'll leave that alone. I can't get the vision of Curtis Granderson stumbling around in center field out of my head. But it's just like, I look at St. Louis and I see so much similarity to a lot of different cities in yes. the Midwest. A lot of the a lot of the same issues with yes. class, with race. And yes. those of it, because you, when you mentioned the high school thing, I went to Renaissance High School in Detroit. When you say you went to Renaissance High School, oh, you're one of those super smart kids. Right. You come from those kids that have money didn't have money but we, right. they assume you have money or you've got this sort of upbringing and you and you they look at you and obviously what you've accomplished clearly it was they they would have the right idea that someone like you would be able to go on and do all these things how much of st louis kind of dictates what you do in your daily life like when you how much of that do you carry with you you know it's not just st louis i everybody who knows me knows that i love st louis and i carry a piece of st louis with me every day in fact i still have my 314 area code um, for my phone number however um as a reporter you see similarities between the different cities you see similarities between uh, flint michigan and east st louis and ferguson missouri and and Jackson, Mississippi, South Jackson. You see um, news stories that are the same. And so how much of St. Louis do I take with me? I take a piece of St. Louis, but I also take a piece of these other cities that I've worked in with me as well, because I feel like there are stories to be told um, from all of these different regions that could benefit us, and we're just not telling these stories. Briefly, what was working in Flint like? The sun never came up. <laughs> <laughs> it was so cold. I came from, um, I, I started working in Flint, Michigan after working in Jackson, Tennessee, and then working in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And I went to school in Jackson, Mississippi, or near Mississippi, or near Jackson, Mississippi. There you go. And uh, it was so warm in the South, right? Oh, yeah. And then I go all the way up north and to Flint, and it was so cold, and I was the morning reporter, and... Uh, yeah, it was like I was waiting the entire year for the sun <laughs> to come out, and then the sun like came out and then it left. Uh, it, um, the, it makes cameo appearances. There you go. The cool thing about Michigan, there's some hard workers in Michigan. Like I really learned about work ethic. A lot of us don't have money, but that doesn't mean that we're going to turn our backs on each other. It's kind of like we're in the same boat. Yeah. And like let's pull each other up together. Um, that's what I took away from Michigan. I learned some valuable life lessons there. That's the, the thing is that having, I mean, being in Detroit, which is only 70 mile difference mm -hmm. between Detroit and Flint, it's really, even though Flint's not a suburb, it's almost like a brother city to us where we both kind of, we're brothers in struggle yeah. in a lot of cases where Detroit looks at Flint and we're both like, yo, we, the struggle been, is real. We've been there. And uh -huh. it's like, it, we don't run from it. We don't hide from it. When I went to Michigan State, I ran into a lot of cats from Flint mm -hmm. because MSU, this contrary to all the U of M love that just floats through that state. MSU was the first school in that state to really make inroads into inner cities like mm -hmm. Detroit, like Flint, mm -hmm. like Lansing, Grand Rapids, where they went out and reached out to African-American students. Mm -hmm. So I got to really know Flint more so in college. And then when I worked out there, it was a similar thing. I mean, I was used to not seeing sun for four or five months at a mm -hmm. time. Yes. But, and I know it gets cold in St. Louis, but there's a different kind of, there's a different kind of winter in <laughs> cold is cold. I will admit that. I, I am afraid of New York winter. I came up here a couple of times this past winter, but uh, I think I'm already preparing myself for the cold weather. Our, our cold been, is cold. Our winters are very aggressive. It's, it's <laughs> not just cold. It's aggressively cold. Like it's, it's all in your pocket kind of cold. So you, and you went from Flint 
W E I E Y I, excuse mm-hmm. me, W E I is the radio station in Boston, W E Y I, to KMOV. Yeah. What's that like going home for you now that you've kind of almost like a full circle type of thing? You've made it back home to one of the larger markets in the country. It was certainly beautiful. I remember my dream for so long was just so that my grandmother could see me on TV. I never considered maybe she could see me nationally. I just wanted her to see me at home, right? Mm -hmm. And so for so long, I worked to get um, on TV in St. Louis. And so that was my, one of my more proud moments is that the people in the community, they knew that I was off chasing this dream and trying to be on TV, but they really didn't understand it. And every other year I'm in a different city, but to see it all come together and to see me on TV in my home city and reporting on stories and I know the area, Mm -hmm. um, that was a big deal for me. And being able to help out my own city, like that's one of the joys of being a reporter. You guys present a problem and then I do everything I can to help solve it or, you know, bring it to light. And so I love doing that in my own town. Is there, what's the kind of pressure like coming home? Because I know that when I, I see it a lot in sports too, like guys will go and play for the team in their city. If a guy from New York ends up with the Yankees or the Mets or some dude comes home and plays yeah. for the Indians or something like that, there's there's an odd added pressure to it. What was it like for you knowing the city and knowing what you're getting coming coming in there? Um, I guess I got to a point I just didn't want to let anyone down. Like I just wanted to be successful and I was going to do everything that I needed to do to be successful. I know that with success comes hard work, right? God mm-hmm. had promised me in college I would be successful if I put in the work. And so... I just constantly um, try to put in the work. But I'll tell you what keeps me up, Jay. It's it's my community, it's um, my support, it's my friends, it's my family, it's my followers. Um, reminding me that, hey, like you can do this. You know, we're your support, you know, we got your back. And so that kind of keeps me going as well, especially when you get tired and you know. You're dragging, and, mm-hmm. it, and it's that it's having. Or that, you getting up at two o'clock in the morning, and you're like, "Why am I doing oh this?" That <laughs> <laughs> was that was my life for yes. two and a half years, almost three years in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. It was the getting up at minus three a.m. and having get mm-hmm. up at three a.m. be there. It's. I was on TV at four thirty. I still don't. I don't. I've never understood how. I never understood how I did it either. It's tough enough in radio where where you're getting up and they don't see you and you can kind of drag a little bit into the studio. You guys are on it, like on point. Yeah, hair and makeup and scripts and it's a lot. It's a lot. So, um, I'm looking forward to making this transition digitally. What is it that people don't understand about working in TV? Because I know that people see the TV in is like, oh, Jesus, what don't they understand? (laughs) (laughs) Everything. It's crazy. Um, Ooh, I don't know. That's so loaded. What do people not understand about TV? What do you mean? I guess from your from your perspective, since you're someone who goes into TV and people probably see you or people were seeing you every single day and they're thinking, how is she just on it? When when they see you standing in front of that camera, it's 5 a.m. and and people's days are just getting started and you've got the smile on your face. and Everybody's ready to go. What is it that they don't understand is behind the work that goes into making that happen? You know, I wish that we got to keep the um, live stream up longer when I worked at WJTV because I would do these behind the scenes videos, which I still have online. You Mm -hmm. can find it on my social media. And that was a way to show people what was going on behind the scenes. How the sausage is made, basically. Yeah, um, because you see it one way on TV and that's just not how it is in real life. I feel like I'm almost changing myself Mm-hmm. to be this TV presenter. So I'm changing my hair, I'm changing my voice. The people on my live stream would be like, 
did y'all just see her change her voice? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then you know I intro a story, and then I'm like, "What up, y'all? I'm back." And they're like, "How did you just do uh, this?" That, that wonderful world of code switching. Yeah, so it's like I was living in two different worlds almost, and um, so it's interesting. It's just that, that people just maybe expect a certain look or expect a certain presence on TV, and you have to fit that mold. Um, and then for me, it's all about content. For me, like at the end of the day, I am a reporter at heart. I don't care how my hair looks, my makeup <laughs> looks, my dress. Like I'm just trying to help folks or put this content out, these stories out. And so, yeah, it bothers me when it's like I've worked on the story all day and then someone's like, your hair is out of place. Like, really? You for real. That's what you see. You know, I've sat here for six hours and that's the first thing. Right. Like I done ran all over your city <laughs> trying to get you answers. And all you know, this is OK, I'm going to start wearing the same off. black dress every day. See how much y'all notice that. Like, OK. But then there's going to be somebody like, she wears the same black dress every day. Does she have like five? You know, Brittany, Brittany doesn't you know, she's getting to a point now where she just really doesn't care. <laughs> she does. There's you know, I'm just like, you know, I'm just all about reporting at this point, which is the the main reason why I came up to New York is to find a, a different platform so that we can start telling some of these stories so it doesn't feel like I'm not being myself. You're not being authentic. Yeah. And the yeah. thing is, I know with you, the story that kind of really introduced everybody to you or really started, it was simply put, August 9th, 2014. Yeah. So you get wind of this incident in Ferguson, Missouri. Oh, God bless it. These are just such difficult moments to talk about, but I'll go through them with you. I, well, I appreciate that. And I know it's not easy. And I know it's not. Because I've been, I, I think about when I, when I, when I've heard you retell this and I've seen this with you, it's like the first thing that pops in my head is what it was like for me having to kind of scramble together the words for when Detroit was dealing with the bankruptcy. Mm. Because that was like our entire, really 40 years worth of it was just, it was all kind of coming together and every I'm dealing with national reporters who are asking me questions and it's like, dude, I don't think you quite get this, mm -hmm. that this is not just simply, oh, they didn't take care of their money. You're living in St. Louis, got Ferguson just on the outside of it. For those of us who didn't know anything or didn't know much about the whole relationship that St. Louis and its nearby suburbs and race and everything, for you, what is it like August 9th, 2014, when that becomes essentially your, your, you're one of the faces at the front of this story. Yeah, so let's explain like Brittany's mindset at that time. Please do. Okay, so I was coming back from an NABJ convention. It uh, was 2014, Wesley Lowry had just won Emerging Journalist, which is one of my very good friends. And you know he's a newspaper reporter, a national newspaper reporter at the Washington Post. And so I was thinking, you know, how is it that he wins this award, and you know, TV reporters never get this visibility? And <laughs> can you believe I was complaining about that? I was actually saying that out loud. And um, you know, I was complaining about how my station wouldn't give me any anchoring opportunities. They wouldn't take me off of weekends. Just you know, my career felt stagnant. It's like, where do I go from here? And, um, you know, my mentors and stuff at NAPJ, you know how it is. And oh, they're, yeah. they're very encouraging. Like, you can do it. Just put in the work. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I go home and I think it was like the next week. 
because we probably had NABJ the first week and yeah, my dad was, uh, and I. That's Boston. So, I mean, like days, only days had gone by. And so um, I had been doing this crazy shift where I would work um, day side, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday till like 6 p.m., 6.30, you know, do the 6 o'clock show, get back to the station, then leave. And then do this turnaround shift where I would get up early in the morning and work Saturday and Sunday mornings. So I'm exhausted. Do you hear me? You know, <laughs> doing Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'm a, I mean, Saturday, I am exhausted. We had breaking news that Saturday morning. It was crazy. Um, I had a engagement shoot and we were out there shooting pictures and we found out that Mike died. And I was actually living in Ferguson at the time. I'm from South St. Louis City. Okay. Um, but I had moved out to Ferguson um, and I had only been there like maybe two weeks. So I hadn't been there long. And when we found out that Mike had died and his body was laying in the streets, I called my producer and said, do you need help? And she's like, yeah, please. I said, okay, I'm on my way in. So I didn't have anything. Um, in fact, when I got there, I didn't have my reporting bag, I remember. And so I got there and I like stole somebody else's notebook and pen. Somebody, I even stole somebody's IFB and that's gross. Um, and then I, I went out into the field. And so, um, what don't people see? What don't people know about Ferguson? Um, they made it seem like Ferguson was a really bad neighborhood. And that's just not the case. Um, Ferguson is, is a very nice area. It's it's where people like me from the city, it's like our county. It's, you know, we went from one house in the city to, you know, uh, more space, more land out in the county. It's a better school district. Uh, so for us black folks, like, it's really a step up. Um, Ferguson, for some of my coworkers, whom I love so much, okay, KMOV went through the fire with me after I called in my story, mm -hmm. right? Um, but with a lot of them, you know, there are people that used to live in Ferguson. You oh, know, wow. they live there and then white flight, you know, they got out of there and us black folks started moving it's in. It's just like the Detroit suburbs, yeah. just like Philly suburbs, yeah. same thing. And so Ferguson is just one town. I think there's like 88 municipalities across the St. Louis County of like smaller towns. And they're all kind of like Ferguson. And so when you see people getting upset and when they were protesting in Ferguson, that wasn't just Ferguson they were protesting about. There was similar problems that happened in Ferguson that were happening in all these other smaller towns in St. Louis County. Um, and that's something that people didn't explain very well either when we were in the midst of uh, talking about Mike Brown's death. It, was, it almost became like a sociology lesson as mm -hmm. much as it was a story about a young man killed by a police officer. And it, it's a, where people got to, got to look into what was going on in that part of the country that extended further out because that, that whole story led to wholesale changes in criminal justice in terms of how things were handled out there, too. Yeah, but there's so much more that we could still dig into. And so that's why I'm like, oh, we're going to talk about it, Jay. I'm not ready. <laughs> because it is, it's hard. It, um, it is. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it is. It, it's difficult um, to talk about some of these things, but just the way that we covered the story, um, we could have done such a better job, period. And, you know, I struggle with the fact that you probably wouldn't even know about Mike Brown had I not called myself into work, truly, because it was just another young black kid that got shot 
you know, you know how they talk in the newsroom. Oh, yeah. And so, oh, boy, do I ever. Yeah. And so it's just like a kid gets shot, whatever. We'll get some VO. We'll get some video and we'll move on. Had I not gone there and found some other, you know, some other parts to the story or had I not used social media to share the story, it probably wouldn't have caught on the way that it did. So ugh, it's just a lot to unpack. It was it was interesting that you brought up Wesley because Wesley ended up out there. And once things really picked up, my friend Tanzina, Tanzina Vega, who now hosts uh, Takeaway mm-hmm. for NPR, she was out there. Mm-hmm. And you were one of the first because you were right on the ground and local. And I guess it mm-hmm. showed the power of local news coverage mm-hmm. for what you did. And I know it was difficult to talk about. And, and, you know, the power of national, too. You know, it's like I started the groundwork with people like Wesley was able to come in and, you know, follow behind me and and take the story even to bigger lengths if it wasn't for some of his reporting and the reporting of so many others that were on the ground we wouldn't be where we are now i just feel like i played a small part you know well yeah um i think and and i think that also kind of play that kind of shows the type of person you are that you feel that you played a much smaller role i will tell you as someone who is sitting in a newsroom in lansing michigan Mm -hmm. watching a lot of this unfold because we were taking cues from that story Mm And looking around Lansing and thinking, because Lansing is really no different than a city like mm-hmm. like Ferguson. This is like it's the same thing. It's this nicer area, racially diverse, but there was always tension there. Yeah, tension with the police, tension with some of the. It, it was right there. And I'm thinking this could have. I, I remember saying it in a newsroom as the only black guy in the newsroom, only black person in the newsroom. This could happen here. Mm-hmm. You and know what? what people, do we do? What people didn't understand in that. I was really passionate about people understanding is that in St. Louis, we didn't have any minority um, managers making decisions in TV news, like period, in the city. That's And that's wild. Absolutely insane. That's so wild. here we are care- covering what has become a civil rights movement. And we have nobody of color helping them make decisions. Like, oh, maybe we should put Brittany Noble back on the story. <laughs> like, <laughs> maybe this isn't a good idea. They, to... pulled you, they pulled you off that story, oh, didn't yeah, they? yeah. I never went back out there when the grand, uh, grand jury decision was made. Um, they changed my schedule. Um, so that was only working mornings, completely took me out of Ferguson. Um, then, you know, when you're working for somebody, you can't necessarily be as vocal and talk about it. Yeah, that was hard just because there was there was parts of the story. I felt like we could have done a better job telling. It's a it's an odd feeling being a black journalist. Being silenced. <laughs> being, having that mute button again. Ooh. Some of y'all know, have, have I've mentioned it, I've made little references to it on this show of what it's like to get muzzled at a certain point in time. And it's not fun. No. It, it's not fun at all. And your work didn't go unnoticed because you mentioned at the start of that that you had just seen Wesley get this award at NABJ. Yeah. One year later. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it's like it's a, just like, whoa, how did this happen? I never, I never saw it for myself. Um, uh, but you know, it's all about hard work, you know, and sometimes we all look at somebody else and think that their, their careers came easy to them. And I can make fun of Wesley just because I know his career didn't come easy to him. I know how hard he's worked, you know, cause I've been there for him. Oh, oh yeah. I, I, I needle him occasionally yeah. too when I see him. Yeah. So you're the next year, you're in Minneapolis getting almost the identical award that he got the year before, I think, was he was emerging journalist. Yeah, that was surreal. And, you know, what was really surreal was the toast that they had for me. Um, YBJ, Young Black Journalists, they do a toast every year. 
and it's to honor the person who wins Emerging Journalist. And so that year, after Mike Brown died, that was just a really emotional year for all of us. Oh, I'm sure. We're just all crying, you know, and it was just like, what in the world are we witnessing? What are we seeing? What is happening in our country? What are we reporting? What can we do? Like, does our life matter? Um, and so that was a, that was very, very emotional. And, and one of the reasons why I keep pushing too. Absolutely. You know, because there's so many of us out here, especially black journalists that are going through the same issues that you and I are, you know, every day. And one of the points that I made while we were in Detroit at our NABJ 18 conference is we did an interview with um, Detroit Public TV. And channel, channel 56, and WTVS. And I said, you know, y'all forget these new stations weren't created for us. Nope. You know, they were created in the 50s and the 60s when uh, they were supporting segregation. They didn't necessarily want the black voice or the, our viewpoint to be told. Oh, yeah. And we're still dealing with that. Detroit is that rare city that I've seen where there is there actually has been a push in the local stations to get more of us on screen. Yeah. But you don't see it too many places. And I've and I've I've been in Philly, in and out of Philly, and I sat in a newsroom where I'm the only black guy in a city that is seventy three percent black and brown. Yeah, there's a there's a couple points to that. One is you know, at least they're putting black folks on the desk together exactly. in Detroit. Because in you know, like in Mississippi, at my shop at JTV, I'd never seen the two black anchors anchor and, and we'll and, I'm, I'm and I don't know that it's ever happened before. <laughs> Why are you laughing? You can see the look on her face when she said Keep that. Keep me, father. Um, <laughs> I I see and see that's the that's the ill thing is that I ran into that more than one occasion in in, in Philly where. I'm telling people like, no, <laughs> this is an issue. We've got to hit this where yeah. they were so nervous. Yeah. I did a story about black Muslims because Philadelphia is one of the highest black Muslim populations in the country. Uh-huh. I do a story on black Muslims. And at first I was just straight up told no, because who would really pay attention to this? Then I keep needling, keep pushing. Well, this could be controversial. We're not sure how we'll handle it. What about the Nation of Islam? It's like, dude, Nation of Islam is like an outlier amongst bl- most black Muslims do not get down like that. Let me go talk to these people. Mm-hmm. And finally I pushed and pushed and got the story. And the story was amazing because I'm talking to this woman who she has every bit of fear that you have being a black mother. But now it's ratcheted up because her la- her son's last name is Muhammad. So now you have to deal with you're already afraid your teenage son who's six feet tall is going to be in trouble. Now your teenage six foot son who also happens to be Muslim. It's like it's a double whammy. Yeah. And then I was able to get a hold of a guy who, who was the head of the Philly NAACP, but he was also a member of the Nation of Islam. Mm. And he talked about that perspective. Mm-hmm. Story went really well, but they just seemed so astonished. Mm. And you have to fight for these things. And I see it when, when you talk about him being in one of the biggest stories of the decade is Michael Brown. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it make a little bit of sense to have somebody who kind of has, I don't know, this in common to kind of make that work a little bit. One of the things that my executive producer told me in St. Louis, and, you know, I love him to death, but he said, Brittany, I just don't want to keep putting oil in the fire. You know, I just want it to die down. I just want to stop it. You know, they, they thought that if they didn't report the story. It'll go away. That it would go away. Right. And we know that that's not 
the case. That's not how the news and works. And when I was in Mississippi, you know, I thought, you know, some of the content things, I it kind of fell out with KMOV about, and I really wanted to anchor, so I'm like, okay, we'll go down to Jackson, it'll be fine. Um, but even there, telling some of the stories that I think are important, um, no, we you, didn't get to do them. And, and they, <laughs> I would, right. And I would have my bosses, one executive producer down there said, Brittany, you're just not going to be able to tell these kind of stories down here. You know, you won't be able to do it anywhere down here. You need a national platform. It's like, why do I need a national platform when we can start uncovering some of these issues here locally? Jackson, Mississippi, yeah. you've got a lot of black people in it. I, yeah. I ain't been down to Mississippi. Oh, gosh. I've been in Alabama, but not Mississippi. And I know Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, they all kind of have the Arkansas. My cousin works in Arkansas. It's all kind of the same. And you know thing. what? It's not when you're talking about um, content and bringing content to homes down there. If you bringing news stories. It's not a black or white thing. You know, like if, if we were being properly portrayed in the media as black folks and white folks alike, if we were all, um, if all of our stories were being told, if we all had a voice in these news meetings when we're selecting the stories, I think it would benefit the whole entire city. You know, we wouldn't necessarily be scared of folks that we had no reason to be scared of. Right. You know, or um, you just can be more educated when it's time to um, elect new people in the city. It's like we don't even touch that stuff (laughs) because we're running around with Donald Trump sites and, you know, local crime stories that affect no one. So Right. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of deal with that. There are so many other things that we could be reporting and so many other things we could be hitting. But often in these newsrooms, they're so stuck on one particular thing that so many other things get lost in the sauce. But that's not all we talked about. Coming up after this break, Brittany leaves St. Louis and heads back to Mississippi. But this time not as a college student, as a seasoned reporter and a soon-to-be mom. But things started to go left when she got to Jackson, and it led her all the way to New York City. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 85th episode of The People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio, and we'll be back with Brittany Noble after this. I want you to take a look over here at the Sam's Meat Market. I've been telling you about store employees standing guard. You see that they are armed with guns. They are just, uh, they tell me, protecting their store. They don't want any more looters. Um, If you would have taken a look inside, I showed you a little bit earlier, and maybe I'll go back in there coming up, but um, their store has been completely ransacked. There's meat on the floor. There's um, bottles of liquor on the floor, glass everywhere. And they also said that somebody tried to set a fire you can see some of the rubbish um, there in the window from that. So that's what's happening here. This is what the scene looks like um, on West Florissant, um, right outside the Sam's Meat Market in Ferguson. You're listening to the People's Podcast. What do you do if you forget a lyric? I keep stepping. This is JSC Radio. Man, do I love card night. You ready, boys? You got a king? Go, fish that! Oh, come on! <laughs> this is WWE superstar Titus O'Neil. It only takes a moment to make a moment. 
Take time to be a dad today. Learn more at 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes. And you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to, are you? Kids, work, listening to the radio. You're busy, which is great because busy people can't get prediabetes. Oh my, I read that wrong. (laughs) They can. Should have worn my glasses. So visit doihaveprediabetes.org and take a short test because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. You're listening to the People's Podcast. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. This is JSC. Radio. Even since my um, live shot just a few minutes ago, Deanna, more people are showing up. Literally, a man just walked inside. He said, where's the broom? You know, give me a broom, give me a trash bag, and let's work. And so that's really what we're seeing. If we can take a look over here. Earlier this morning, we showed you how this was all a big trash pile, and now you have so many people from the community. Many of them do not know each other. They do not know the store owners. They saw these images this morning and said, we're not going to take this in our community. They tell me they're upset. They said they're mad. And I even want to talk to uh, Bradley Rayford. Bradley, if you don't mind stepping over here, um, he's actually a a photojournalist. I've been following your tweets. I've been following your Instagram. Um, But now I see you with the room in your hand what's going on i take this i, I really take this personally because this this could it could, this could be my business that was attacked by people that lost their minds so i i, I take this personally okay. and then i know you were out here last night because you told me that you even helped to put out some kind of fire here they um they they tried to set the uh the sound sea market on fire so I, I i saw that so i came in ran and grabbed some sodas and dumped it on top of the fires and cleared out well, thank you so much. And he is just one of many people volunteering their time to help and help this store owner. If you don't mind, sir, um, I know you're cleaning up and you got a lot of help here. What do you feel about all these people from the community coming the to help clean is, up your business? The thing I want to say, this is what the community is about. The community is not about looting and stealing, vandalism, business. That's what the community is all about. That's the, these are the kind of people they want justice for, Michael Bryant. Whoever came here looting and vandalism business, they're not from Ferguson. That's 100% sure. They're from either East St. Louis or City of St. Louis. They're not from Ferguson. That's 100% guaranteed. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. And that's kind of what's happening, what the inside of Sam's Market looks like. And I bet, oh, we're we're running into each other. I I told you I was in the way. I bet that if you guys come back to me here in a few minutes, the store will look completely different. This is the 85th episode of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. Welcome back. J. Scott Smith here. Of course, you can follow me on Twitter at J. Scott Smith, J-A-Y-S-C-O, two T's, S-M-I-T-H. You can follow our guest, Brittany Noble, at Noble Jones on TV. You can also, of course, get at her on Instagram at The Noble Journalist. I also want to thank my man, Doc Illingsworth, whose music you hear underneath you right now. He's got his upcoming album, You're No Fun. That's courtesy of Mellow Music Group. That's dropping on September the 28th. I have put a link to get the pre-order in the description as well. But let's get back to this interview. Last we left off, we were talking about the prevalence or lack thereof of quality stories in newsrooms. Well, Brittany, after her groundbreaking work in her hometown of St. Louis, took a job down in Jackson, Mississippi, effectively returning to her second home after going to Alcorn State in college. But as she tells us here and going forward, 
things were not what they seemed in Jackson, Mississippi. And she'll also talk to us about how she ended up on her journey in New York City. This is JSC Radio. Let's get back to the interview. You're in St. Louis, hometown. You were part of, like I said, one of the largest, one of the biggest stories of the really decade. It was one of, it was kind of a culture changing type of story when we think about it in retrospect. And you end up leaving to go to Jackson, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So you're back in Mississippi. Yeah. Having gone to college there. Yeah. What factored into the decision to leave St. Louis to go to Jackson, whole new market in the shade of the deep, deep South where the Confederate flag is still in their state flag? You know, I guess I wasn't even thinking about the Confederate emblem at the time because I had such a positive experience in Mississippi when I went there for college. So I guess Alcorn was in our own little bubble, you know, and we were just protected in that bubble. And so I thought that this was indicative of the entire state, but not so much. This was just the, you know, this... It's a, it it's was a little the oasis. reservation. It's an oasis an in oasis the middle of, all, of that word. desert. Yeah. Um, and so when I got back, you know, that was a little different. But my husband was going to seminary. And so there was a good seminary down in Jackson. Um, I was familiar with the area, having gone to college down there. Mm-hmm. It would allow me to anchor the morning show, the noon show, which was about 15 hours of anchoring a day, which was time for me to improve my skills. And um, again, it was my adopted state. This is the area that I went to school. I felt like I was giving back. You know, I've already gone back to my home state and given back there. Um, And there's something very special to me about helping out people that have already invested something into you. Um, So, you know, a lot of people ask me why I didn't go to bigger cities at that point. I just felt like, you know, that was the right move for me at the time. So when you got to Jackson, what's the differences between being in St. Louis and being in Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, it was a it was a difference in market size. And so when we talk about media, um, yeah. that was something because the people that I worked with in St. Louis, I mean, they were all I was the young person by far mm-hmm. um, of the like general assignment reporters and stuff. I was at least maybe 25 so you were just yeah, you were just the kid years yeah. under them. Yeah, you yeah. were the kid in the room. Yeah, yeah. And so the producers and the investigative reporters, the anchors, I mean, I was just able to um, learn so much. You know, that was when when I learned how to re- that's when I feel like I really, really learned how to report. Uh, was when I was in St. Louis. When I got to Mississippi, it was a difference because the city is smaller and so the the people in the room, like I, as soon as I came in there, came in as like a leader, mm-hmm. which was something different than I experienced in St. Louis. So my producers were younger and my reporters were younger and this was like my team that I was overseeing. So that was very different than um, what I experienced in St. Louis. It's a step down, it's a step down in market size, but in a, in a sense it's a step up in terms of responsibility. Yeah, it almost helped me with my manager skills yeah. and being able to um, mentor other reporters. So I've mentored several reporters that there were my mentees down there and they're doing extremely well now too. So um, it was just a, it was different, different than what I had experienced before. Sure. So you were there, you were morning, morning anchor there. And that's when I really started to see you with the videos every day. And, yeah. the, and, and you look, I mean, you look perfectly fit for that role as an anchor, whether I, whether it's in Jackson or in St. Louis or Chicago or wherever, it's like that seeing you there is like, 
she fits. This is where she, this is where, this is like, it's natural for you. It is natural. And I do feel like I, I do fit in that mold. Um, but when I think about it growing up, I was always a performer. And so I did a lot of plays. I sang a lot. I was always in, on stage in front of a crowd. Um, and I realized towards the end at WJTV, that's what I was doing. I was acting. And it wasn't real reporting. You were playing. You were playing. A I role. was playing a game. Yeah. It does bring me to this. So you were there. You were doing by at least from somebody on the outside. Look, you're doing very well, or at least doing pretty well. And then suddenly you're not there anymore. Yeah. So what brought about? <laughs> what happened? What What the hell happened in, <laughs> in Jackson, Mississippi? Is what I'm basically going to ask you. How did oh, How gosh. did we go from you being essentially effectively a centerpiece of that station to persona non grata. There were several different issues at JTV that should be addressed. And I think that we deal with a lot of TV media BS. We get it. Um, But when now you have a child involved, now that I'm a mother, Mm -hmm. you know, you cannot stay quiet about certain things. Um, and so it became apparent to me that <clears throat> after I told them that I was pregnant with my first son, you know, they stopped including me in commercials and I stopped being allowed to represent the station and events. And, you know, this is difficult for me because I'm, you know, I'm small. I've always been very, very small. <laughs> you are, you are rather petite. And I'll put so it that way. when I was gaining weight, you know, with my son and on TV, and this is my first pregnancy, and you know, I'm just like, ah, my station doesn't support me. So we had issues with that. Um, I didn't get a place to pump milk for my son. You know, I didn't get a, a place to literally this pump is, milk. This is like crazy. basic, th- this is crazy. This I is got crazy. an email saying that they would allow me the storage closet during normal business hours. And you and I both know that I don't work during normal business hours. So there were like some things where it's like, hold up, time hold on, on. on. We got to address this. <laughs> and then, you know, we had the issues with my hair. You right. know, when I came back from having Mike and I'm like, okay, why am I putting this wig on every day? Why am I trying to flatten iron my hair? My hair is falling out. I got a screaming baby at home. I'm trying to breastfeed. I'm trying to anchor. This is too much. Can I stop straightening my hair? And my boss was like, yeah, that's no problem. And then maybe a month later, he's like, you know, your natural hair is unprofessional. It's the equivalent to me wearing a baseball cap to go to the grocery store. Mississippi viewers want to see a beauty queen. And so it was, you know, a lot of these issues just, you know, about our, our look. <laughs> Jay's face right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is where we need the video feed. You guys should see my reaction to this. Please continue. I'm just, I'm, wow. There's a couple of conversations off, off air that we will have about some of the wonderful things I've heard before. But So, yeah, you know, it just got to a point where it's like, Okay, content, you're shutting me down. You obviously don't want another black person to sit next to me on the desk and anchor the news. And we're obviously filtering some of our news so that we're not talking about certain things. But one, y'all got to remember, I am black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> got to <laughs> like, remind people. Okay, my yeah. real hair is an afro, right? We can <laughs> keep straightening it as long as you want to make me into something that I'm not. But at the end of the day, like, God created me to look the way that I do. Exactly. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, it was, it, we just didn't get along. <laughs> we Miss, just, Mississippi wasn't exactly. We didn't uh, get along. I'm, I'm still tripping off the storage closet. 
Okay. Storage closet. It reminds me of The Help. Have you seen The Help? No, of course I've it's seen like, The Help. It's like, I'm the morning anchor. This is not that. They don't put you in a store. Now, you may not say this, since I say whatever I want. That's some bullshit, first and foremost. I'm going to tell you to go into a, into a storage closet to breastfeed, like you're basically some sort of animal. You have to be kind of And you know what it is? You think about it, you know, the show started at 4.30. We go live from 4.30 to 7, and then I'm still on live until 9 o'clock. So it's really a block of time from 4.30 to 9. Do you really want your morning anchor to stop and go pump? Exactly. You're not going to say that out loud. No. But, you know, I think that's what it was. Now, one day, obviously, a lot of this acrimony had been kind of building. There had been different things and the slights and the issues with the hair. Your hair looks lovely, by the way. The, Why, thank the, the, you. The issues with your hair and everything else. My first time having braids. It looks... It, it At looks, the African shop, they were like, first time? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Don't judge me. <laughs> no, we're not, not, here to, not here to judge. No, there is no judgment. At least not, not if you... I'm judging the hell out of them, but not judging you. So... You, there was this, obviously this had been building. So my mentor, he's a big wig up here at one of the major corporations. Um, and he said, Brittany, you need to file a complaint. <laughs> His words were, they don't want a Megan Kelly. You need to file this complaint and, you know, keep it moving. You should have filed a complaint yesterday, you know. And I'm like, okay. And so I filed a complaint with our company, Star, and then um, the retaliation I mean, it was just... It ratcheted up at that point. Overwhelming. And so I ended up going to EEOC with the state. And so now they have the case and federal investigators are looking into it. So I don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, but it's just one of those things like when preacher, my pastor would preach when I was in Mississippi about, you know, giving everything you can, you know, giving all that you have, all of your knowledge, all of your talents, everything that you have, like give it all away. And I felt like, you know, the stuff that I knew about what we were doing and not doing on TV in Mississippi, things that we could get better, ways that we can better educate our community, then I didn't need to stay silent about it. And I need to start using my voice to talk about it. And so that's what I've been doing. And the end officially came after a really devastating moment in your life. Wasn't that crazy? Of all things. You know what I'm saying. And please explain to them, because I can only do it so well, what, what So happened? we, you know, the EEOC said, Brittany, like, they're going to fire you, like, please. And I said, um, I guess when, once I filed the EEOC complaint, you know, the, the investigators and stuff and the caseworkers were saying, Brittany, they're going to fire you. And I said, let them fire me. I said, do I have to sign an NDA? She <laughs> said, no. I said, well, then let them fire me. Exactly. Um, and so... I got word later on, like we knew my grandfather was sick and with my grandfather, we're just very close. We share the same birthday, 923. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so um, he basically raised me growing up. My dad wasn't around and so my grandpa was. And so we're just extremely close. And so when it got to a point where he wasn't opening up his eyes and I do a good job of like being able to put the BS to the side and present the news because news anchors are going, we ain't thinking about news when we up there. You know, it's just so much stuff going on. Right. Um, but I do do a good job of putting that self stuff behind me. But when my grandpa wasn't opening up his eyes anymore, you know, I was like, okay, I gotta go home. Like we gotta go take care of grandma. We gotta go see how the family, I just had, I had to go check on my family. And so when I was there, 
But sure enough, um, they told me that I was able to take my accrued sick time to go take care of my family. And they put it in the email that I was okay and they were doing everything they could to keep my check whole. But okay. uh, that was not the case. Oh, boy. Yeah, and they got rid of me while I was home taking care of Grandpa. So, which was fine. Wow. It, and you know what? It's truly fine. Like, I have never been at such a better place. I'm happier. I'm at peace. I um, am still looking for opportunities to tell stories. Um, but what I was doing there, I mean, I just wasn't happy. I, and, didn't, I, I wasn't happy. And you filed a lawsuit. Correct. Well, the EEOC. So hopefully the federal investigators, the state of Mississippi will probably fight this case for me. Okay. Um, And so they're looking into that now. But every time they every time we talk, I have more and more evidence and they're like, whoa, let me look into this again. It's stacking up. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm not really that worried about it. Um, I'm just trying to continue pressing forward. And, you know, it didn't have to come down to a lawsuit. I just wanted Nextstar to see the effects of some of the decisions that we were making in the newsroom and the impact that it has on the community. It's usually how it starts, though, is that... Like, it didn't have to... It doesn't have to be this No, way. not at all. Like, we could have had a sit-down meeting like, oh, like, by the way, it's okay to have a black Santa Claus on TV. <laughs> like, it's 2018. That's it's, acceptable. In, we can do that. In Mississippi, you... You know? Oh, boy. We didn't have to go through all of this. Um, but, you know, one of the cool things that I can say from coming from St. Louis is that I worked at a union shop. And I'm aware of how you gotta or how you shouldn't treat employees. Exactly. Like I know that it's not okay for you not to give me a place to pump. Like, it's, it's it's not cool. I, I know that that's not okay. Right. You know. So you just have to stick up for yourself sometimes. So how did we go from Jackson, Mississippi, to sitting here with each other in Harlem, New York? I knew that with local TV, I'm pretty much done. You know, we've done Arkansas, Tennessee, Flint. Toledo for a little bit. Oh, you did hit Toledo yeah. too. <laughs> um, was it WNWO? Yeah, I, I, I know I somebody so. who works at WNWO. Uh-huh. Um, and then St. Louis, Mississippi. It's like, how many more times can I go to an apartment, live there for a couple of years, pack up my stuff, move again? You form these relationships in the community. It's cut off. Like, I cannot keep doing this anymore. And to go back to our original point, the very beginning of the podcast, is that, you know, there's similarities between all of these cities. And some of these stories can be told in one place to help a magn- like a, a major amount of people. So, um, you know, I'm just working to find out the best way to do that. And what I really love about digital is there's more room and more space to spend time investigating and digging into and, you know... Um, putting details in your story. I don't have that much time in TV news. Like a minute 30, I'm like total with the anchor intro and the rap. And even, even in radio, <laughs> max time we were getting yeah. might have been five minutes, and that is a special situation. Oh, you get five minutes. Yeah, and that's, it has a to, that's a deep investigative. That's a deep cut. <laughs> yeah. So you're not getting no more than maybe two minutes on radio right. on a normal average story, right. too. Right. So digital allows um, more room for that. And, you know, I've been contributing with NBC Black. So the idea that I get to tell stories for NBC from a black perspective, it's like, when? This is what I've been looking for. My exactly, yeah. Um, and then, you know, also with Shadow League. You, you've heard of oh, the Sports and Culture yeah. website. And, 
you know, that's black owned. And so I love having opportunities like this. And New York really is the, the mecca, you know, all these media companies and startups. And um, you surely have a lot more options here than maybe St. Louis, Missouri or Jackson, Mississippi. So, or Detroit, Michigan. Yeah. Right so if you want to do it, it's like, go do it. Go. And so that's why I'm here. My dad's from East Harlem. And so um, I didn't spend much time with him in East Harlem when I was growing up, but it's fun to um, So you've reconnected with, with him, essentially. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. He's not here. He actually went off to L.A. So maybe that's my next move, too. I mean, Because I love not? the warm weather. No, yeah. The, these, the these, these Northeast, East Coast winters are, they're not quite as aggressive as the Midwest winters, but they're still, they, they ain't friendly. But if you can make it through Flint, Michigan, you can make it through... I think that's a that's a that's a metaphor for life. If you can make oh. it to Flint, you can you get you right damn near, damn near anything. Flintstones. I, I, it, that's, Shout that's out for, to that's, them. That's that's for real. So you, the one of the things as we we start to wrap this up, one of the things that jumped out to me obviously at the convention was you had these T-shirts, the Black mm -hmm. Journalists Matter T-shirts. Mm -hmm. What Did is, you get one? I, I'm trying to get one oh, of those. Gosh. I can get one of those from you before you leave here today. Nah, I'm, I had to order some more, but I just got I just got approval from our NABJ president that we're gonna go ahead and do some more. Wonderful. And so it's actually on my to-do list for this week. I was kind of looking for a, um, a maybe a shop in Harlem that could work with us, or we can use our NABJ guy down in Mississippi that made the first round of shirts for us. So I'm working on them. That's a, it's an amazing, um, very simple, but very powerful message. You know, it was one of the things that my friend said in that toast that I told you about, the, mm -hmm. um, the emerging journalist toast back in 2015 where it was just that raw emotional moment. And one of my friends, his name is Earl Arms, he was a uh, sports reporter in Milwaukee at the time. He said, Brittany, thank you for reminding me that black journalists matter. And so I knew it was something special then. It just took us a few years to get approval from NABJ. But to get it down. But yeah. main thing is you got it down. I, mean, yeah. I was joking with you last week, but at the same time, I could just as easily see that being on a coffee mug or being yeah. different, different things and really kind of getting that memo and that message out there yeah. to people. So you're, you're now here in New York. You're working, you're working on a book from what I understand. How is that coming along? Um, it's, you know, interesting. Um, so I'm not used to writing such a big body of work, but since it's a lot, uh, since it's mainly about me, it's been um, not as difficult as I thought that it would be um, writing. So now I'm just working to pair up with the literary agents um, and I'm working to find somebody that I really mesh with, that really understands my vision of okay. what we're trying to do. And so, yeah, I guess that's all I can say for about it right now. But it's definitely about my rise to the anchor desk. Um, some of these untold stories that were filtered out while I was in um, St. Louis and in Mississippi. I mean, if I could start telling you some of the stories we didn't tell, like if you thought you were shocked before about some of the things that were said to me in the newsroom, you would be incredibly shocked about some of the stories that were not being told are See, not being told yeah that's 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 a convo we can have off air yeah because boy there's some there's some things in detroit and philadelphia as the dogs are in here barking yeah. there's some things yeah. <laughs> the things you can tell in detroit they're agreeing between detroit and philadelphia and chicago that i that i dealt with that i wasn't even allowed to get into yeah that brings me to my last question here imagine that you're, you're you are young journalist either you're sitting in a high school or you're sitting in a college, you're in college right now, going to that first internship, young black man, young black woman, and you want to get into this industry. What is something you would tell some journalist who's 18, 19, 20 years old and thinking, 
all right, I want to I want to make a difference. I want to do this. What would you tell them coming in? Well, first of all, don't think of it as money or a job. <laughs> like it's really community <laughs> service, is it not? Oh, yeah. I mean, our hours are crazy. Um, we're constantly. It's just a hard industry. But as long as you are doing it to help other people or as long as um, it's so different for us. Because when we started off in this industry, um, it has changed so much from now until then. And before, it's like we needed somebody else to work for, and we had to do it their way. And now there's so many opportunities to, you know, not even wait to get started uh, reporting. You can do that now. I would say stay humble, stay persistent, and just keep going, especially if this is really, really what you want to do. But again, don't think that you're going to make a lot of money from it, right? And don't think you're going to have a lot of free time because you're not. Everything is dedicated to journalism. And everyone will, people will see those who are making tons of money at CNN <laughs> I, and ESPN and they get, they, they get like, blinded. How do you by. answer this question and let people like stay in journalism? Like, how do you answer this? And you, you don't want to be like those people who I don't want to push them away. Yeah. They're like, this is a hard, this, this industry is hard as hell. It is. And truly only the strong survive. Um, it's, it is not easy by any means. Um, but you don't necessarily have to wait to wait to work for somebody else. You can go ahead and start writing and podcasting and, you know, going live yourself. Um, but, yeah, it's a hard industry. We're here if you need us, though. Exactly. So how can people reach you? <laughs> um, you can find me on social, uh, The Noble Journalist, or on Twitter. It's at Noble Jones on TV. Um, you can find me Facebook, Twitter, IG. My website, thenoblejournalist.com. Noblejournalist.com. I know, yeah, you're Noble Jones on TV on Twitter. Yeah. You're Noble Journalist on Instagram. The Noble Journalist. The yeah. Noble Journalist. Got to get the V in there. The yeah. Noble Journalist on, on Instagram. I can say it's been an absolute pleasure well, thanks sitting for here me. talking to you. Uh, thank you for doing this. I consider it, I consider it an, an honor to talk to you, especially now. I wanted to get you now because I know in two or three years when you are oh, don't like, be. super, super huge, I'm going to have to go through five people just to get you to Not talk even. to me. <laughs> but no, I'm messing around with you. This <laughs> this was Brittany Noble. And thank you so much for coming on JSC Radio with me. Hey, thank you. And there you have it. Another one in the books. Thank you so much to Brittany Noble for taking time out of her busy schedule. I know she was in Toronto last week covering something for NBC Black, which is where you're going to see a lot more of her work on NBC Black. Go to NBC Black. Just simply look that up. You will find all of Brittany's work on there. She's an amazing story of perseverance and honestly, one of the more genuine people that I know in a business full of phony ass individuals, let me tell you. Just want to also take a second to thank the Harlem Collective, which is where I did that interview. Yes, it was a little noisy in the background. It was very real. But the Harlem Collective over on 1867 Amsterdam in Harlem. It's on the corner of 152nd and Amsterdam in Harlem. It's an amazing place. It's got all these different kind of offices and rooms. It had a nice conference room that was set up for me. There's a young lady named Zia Lin who was there who helped me get set up. She was wonderful. Go check out the Harlem Collective, especially if you're in New York City or in North Jersey and you're looking for a place to set up shop for a day. You can rent them by the month. And it's a great place to do a podcast. Plus, you never know, you might be visited by a cute dog in the middle of doing one of them. My name is J. Scott Smith, telling you to take care of yourself. 
God bless. Always dare to be different. Always have your pets spayed or neutered. And we are out of here. Remember to adopt and not buy. And to all you newcomers, thank you so much for joining us for this first time. Let's make sure this is not the last. Subscribe to the show across all your favorite podcast providers and join us here next week for episode 86. But until next time, goodbye, everybody. Are not being told. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a convo we can have off air. Yeah. Because boy, there's some th- there's some things in Detroit and Philadelphia as the dogs are in here barking. Yeah. There's some things yeah. <laughs> there's things you can tell in Detroit. They're agreeing. You're listening to the People's Podcast. Have you ever been unemployed? Were you nervous, man? Yeah. All right. Man. This is JSC Radio. on the news about that five-year-old who found his uncle's gun. The kid didn't know it was loaded. I heard on the news about that 14-year-old girl who was bullied online for like a year. She couldn't take it anymore, so she got her dad's gun from his nightstand. I heard on the news about that guy who broke into someone's house, stole a gun from the hall closet. He accidentally shot his cousin in the head. She killed herself. And later killed the owner of the store he was trying to rob. If you own a gun, you have a full-time responsibility. When you aren't using it, be sure it can't get into the hands of curious children, troubled teenagers, a thief, or anyone else who might misuse it. Your family, friends, and neighbors are all counting on you. Remember, always lock it up. For more information on firearm storage safety, visit ncpc.org. This message brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Ad Council.